Thank you, Curtis. Such good words from Psalm 19. Um, one of the things I love about our church is on a, a Sunday morning, you get like three sermons for the price of one. You know, it's really, it's really rich, really good. Um, well, before we dive into our text this morning and our sermon for today, uh, I want to address something that I said last week and just provide some clarification here. Um, so uh, my sermon manuscript uh, last Sunday, right, I typed everything out word, word by word, so I went back and uh, one thing I said last Sunday that I, I wanted to communicate better uh, was this, right, when Jesus hears about the death of John the Baptist. Um, so I, I said, you may be wondering if Jesus already knew this information about John since he is God, but one thing we need to understand is that Jesus, while he's fully God and his divine nature is all-knowing, his human nature is not omniscient. That's an attribute that belongs to deity, not humanity. Uh, human nature is incapable of being omniscient. So this news of John's death comes as uh, genuine and tragic uh, shocking news to Jesus in his human nature, and his response is, is very human, and we saw Jesus go to a desolate place. Um, so there's a lot of, a lot of uh, profound theology that I did not really explain clearly or well, and so I want to apologize for any confusion that I may have caused last week, and kind of just take a moment to clarify, because I would not want there to be any misunderstanding about Christ. He is our Savior, our Lord. We want to understand him according to the Word, right? So, uh, there's kind of two things I want to just clarify there. First is the theology behind that statement, right? Um, so, Jesus is fully God and fully man, right? I'm going to try to make this succinct and simple here, so, so bear with me. But Jesus is fully God and fully man. He has two natures, two genuine natures, right? He is genuinely divine and genuinely human. And, and these two natures are united in one person, Jesus Christ, right? Uh, and, and so, his human nature, since it is full and genuine, means he has a human body, a human soul, a human mind, right? Just like we do. Full humanity, without sin, of course. Um, but he has all these same attributes that we do, in addition, united to his human nature. Or, uh, sorry, his divine nature, excuse me, right? Fully God, fully man. But these two natures don't mix together in Christ to form like a new kind of hybrid nature, right? That's, that's kind of a blend, right? Red and, red and blue making purple. It's not that kind of thing. His divine nature doesn't swallow up his human nature. They're both fully there in Christ, right? Yet, at the same time, each of these natures has the attributes and qualities that go with it, right, that are proper to it. Um, so, you know, his divine nature has qualities his human nature does not have, and his human nature has qualities his divine nature does not have. Uh, so, for example, right, one of God's attributes is omnipresence. God is everywhere. Right, because he's, he's a spirit, right? God is everywhere. He's everywhere at all times. But Jesus' human nature, his human body, cannot be everywhere at all times, right? Your human body cannot be everywhere at all times, right? That's an example of an attribute that Jesus has in his divine nature, but not in his human nature. Does that make sense so far? Okay. Um, so 1689, I think, is helpful. Uh, the London Baptist Confession says, Christ in the work of mediation, acts according to both natures, each nature doing that which is proper to itself. Uh, so an another example, right, and this is what came up in the sermon on Sunday last week, is the question of God's omniscience and his, Im his immutability. And, and these things go together. So when we say God is immutable, that means God is unchanging, right? God does not change. He is as he has always been. He doesn't change in any way, shape, or form. But when we read the Gospels, we read things like this about Jesus. Uh, Luke 2, 41, the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. 
Luke 2.52, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Hebrews 5.8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. So notice that Jesus is described as, as growing, as becoming strong, as increasing in wisdom and stature, and as learning obedience, as suffering. And, of course, we know Jesus even dies. Can these things be said of God in his divine nature? Well, no, they can't, right? God doesn't increase in any of his qualities. He doesn't change. He cannot suffer. He cannot grow in wisdom, right? God cannot do these things in himself. He's perfect. Jesus, though, having a human nature, learns things. He grows in wisdom, right? His knowledge is limited in his human nature, just like ours is, right? That's how he's able to grow in wisdom and stature and learn obedience. Does that make sense so far? Okay, very good. Um, you know, and, and we see examples in the Gospels of where Jesus' human nature's limitations come out. For example, uh, the father of the demon-possessed son brings his son to Jesus, and Jesus asks, how long has this been happening to him? Mark 9.21. How long has this been happening to him? Well, that doesn't seem to be a rhetorical question from Jesus. Jesus isn't pretending he doesn't know something here. right? This isn't a test of the man's faith. Jesus is genuinely asking, how long has this been happening to your son? Jesus doesn't have this information prior to learning it from this man through asking a question. right? And again, we're talking about his human nature here. Another, uh, maybe the most famous example is when Jesus says, concerning the day or the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father, speaking of his return, right? Jesus says, I don't know when that time's going to be in his humanity, right? He has a limitation in his knowledge, just like you and I do. What I was not trying to say last week is that Jesus loses his divine omniscience when he becomes incarnate, or that that he is completely devoid of this quality. Jesus still possesses this attribute, but it's not in his human nature. It's in his divine nature. Just like omnipresence is not in his human nature, but in his divine nature. And we do see times where Jesus knows more than a regular human would know, right? Where Jesus has insight and knowledge that no mere person could have. And that could be, right, him receiving that from his divine nature or the Spirit revealing it to him. Um, but in any case, Jesus' human nature is not omniscient, right? It can't be omniscient. We can maybe say Jesus denies himself the use of his omniscience in his human nature during his earthly mission. Um, so theologically, right, that's kind of the basis for what I said last week, that this news is coming to Jesus as a shock in his human nature, right? So theologically, that's just a bit of clarification there. Now, when it comes to my interpretation of Matthew 14, 13, that verse, um, I read that verse and interpreted it with that theological basis in mind, right? Um, we look at the context in Matthew 14, 12. The disciples come and tell Jesus this, and Jesus seems to, again, have a very uh, human reaction, right? Now, um, you know, where I think I made a mistake and erred and was confusing is that I stated as fact what I should have stated as hypothesis. So when I said this definitely comes as news to Christ because he doesn't know it. Well, that's not what the text says, right? That's going beyond what the text says. Now, I think it's not an invalid interpretation, but I was not clear that that was my suspicion or my hypothesis. What I should have said is, I think that's what's going on here. Does that make sense? Okay, so I wanted to apologize for any confusion I may cause. 
uh, God's word is holy, right? And theology matters. And so I want to I want to be as clear and careful as I can be, and uh, just uh, correct and clarify uh, what I said last week. So if you have any other questions about that, feel free to come and talk to me after service. Hopefully, I've not made you more confused uh, than uh, than before, but. I did want to take a moment to address that. Okay. Well, you can turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 14. That's where we'll be today, Matthew chapter 14. We're going to finish Matthew 14 today, one chapter in Matthew in two weeks. I think we're, uh, we're at record pace there. So Matthew chapter 14 is where we're going to be, looking at verses 22 through 36. <clears throat> now, I do, I do love uh, getting outdoors, but I've never been a fan of rock climbing. Um, part of that is due to the fact I have a mild fear of heights and a major fear of falling to my death. Um, but I, I learned this week about something that rock climbers do in order to prevent falling to their death. Um, many times a climber, and you may know this already, but many times a climber has a partner on the ground called a belayer. And what they do is they hold the other end of the climber's rope and they use a braking device uh, when needed to stop the climber's fall. They kind of help them manage their descent. Now, if you're a rock climber, you have to have a lot of faith in your belayer, right? Your life is essentially in their hands. You have to really trust that they know what they're doing, that they're not going to be, you know, scrolling on their phone while you're trying to come down the cliff here. You have to have faith in that person, right? <clears throat> but at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter how much faith you have in your belayer. What really matters is their strength and ability to actually save you if you fall. If you have the utmost confidence in them, but they can't help you, it really does you no good. What really matters is their strength and ability to save you if you fall. In this morning's text, we see a similar reality play out as we hear about Jesus walking on the water and Peter sinking. Ultimately, while the quality of our faith matters, it is not the strength of our faith that saves us, but the strength of our Savior is a great comfort and assurance for weak and sinful people like you and I. Let's read our text starting in verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, and they cried out in fear, It is a ghost! But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land uh, at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick, and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. Let's pray as we come to the word of God. 
Our Lord, we thank you for your word that it is holy and perfect in every way. And Lord, we confess though our difficulty in understanding and receiving it is not because of its imperfections, but because of ours. So Father, we ask that you would give us understanding, that by your Spirit you would teach us, and reveal to us the glory and goodness and strength of Christ Jesus, that we might find our rest and our refuge in him. Father, help me to teach your word clearly today without any confusion or, or uh, any uh, difficulty, Lord, but in such a way that's glorifying to you and helpful to your people. Lord, we ask for your help and blessing upon your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Five major points to the sermon, really kind of tracing the flow of the text. The first one, verses 22 through 24, the disciples trouble Jesus' solitude. Verses 22 through 24. And we pick off right where we left off last Sunday. Jesus has just fed the 5,000 in an incredible miracle. They've all eaten and been satisfied. Everybody is amazed. But nighttime is coming. It's getting to be the end of the day. And so Jesus sends the disciples to the other side of the lake while he dismisses the crowds. John's account of this event suggests that the disciples were probably going to travel back to Capernaum on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. So once everybody's gone, Jesus is there by himself. And Jesus, who apparently was more in a, a flat plain area, goes up on the nearby mountain to pray. And this was Jesus' intended purpose back in verse 13, but he was interrupted by the crowds. And by 6 p.m., evening time, nobody else is there. It's quiet, it's starting to get dark, and Jesus is completely alone. Night is falling, and uh, Jesus begins to pray, seeking solitude with his heavenly Father as he does often. And again, we see his human nature on display there too. But while Jesus is on the mountain praying by himself, the disciples are uh, having a much more difficult time. Uh, the boat, according to verse 24, is quite a distance from the land. Uh, John's gospel gives an estimate of about three to four miles away from shore. They're, they're out there in the deep water. But the disciples have not made much headway. We read that there is heavy winds and waves beating against the boat. These waves, when a storm arises on the Sea of Galilee, can be several feet high. This is not smooth sailing. They're trying to row through these waves, but the wind is against them, pushing them back. If you've ever been in a canoe trying to row against the wind, it's very, very difficult. Remember, many of the disciples are veteran fishermen. Right? They grew up on the water. They know what they're doing. They're probably very good rowers. And yet this is a difficult storm for even them to travel in. They're not really getting anywhere. I can't help but wonder if Jesus is on the mountain praying. The disciples at the same time in their boat are praying as well. Uh, they don't seem to be uh, in danger of capsizing, but they're in uh, great uh, exhaustion. Right? They're trying to row. They're probably very frustrated by their situation. And it won't be long until this frustration turns into fear, as we see in verses 25 through 27. The story jumps ahead to the fourth watch of the night, which would be around 3 a.m. This is nine hours later after Jesus has sent them away. They've, they've been on the water facing this situation for nine hours. There's been no improvement. They've made no headway. Again, they're, they're no doubt exhausted, stressed. Their nerves are shot. Nine hours later, Jesus finally comes down off the mountain and goes to them. 
Now, if you and I were to do this, we would have to take a boat and row out to the disciples, right? But not Jesus. He comes to them in a much more amazing way, as we see in verse 25. He walks on the sea. It's one of Jesus' most well-known miracles, walking on water. Now, we sometimes get this picture of Jesus just standing on this glassy, serene water, right, with this beautiful sunset, and there's just these little ripples around his toes as he's taking these soft steps across the water. That's not what's going on at all. It's pitch black. There's probably storm clouds, rough seas, and heavy winds, and Jesus is walking over the tops of these waves, right, towards the disciples without any difficulty at all. It's pretty amazing. This is what we call a miracle. This is a miracle. Um, people cannot walk on water. If you've ever gone swimming, you know that, right? You cannot walk on water. We, we break the surface tension of water. We're, we're too heavy. It can't hold us. But Jesus, by his supernatural power, is able to do this impossible thing. Now, a lot of people are, are skeptical uh, and scoff at miracles because these are impossible. They don't happen. They can't happen. And, and that's exactly right. That's what makes it a miracle. Uh, modern people tend to think that ancient people were gullible and stupid. Uh, the atheist Richard Dawkins says, any belief in miracles is flat contradictory, not just to the facts of science, but to the spirit of science. Right? Those primitive people so long ago. Yeah, but people in the ancient world were not stupid at all. They knew it was impossible for a man to walk on water. Uh, this is fascinating. The ancient Egyptians used hieroglyphics, right? And, and they're hieroglyphic for impossibility, right? The symbol that conveys impossibility is a man walking on water. They recognized that's an impossible thing that people cannot do. They were not stupid. This is a miracle. This is out of the ordinary. This isn't supposed to happen under normal circumstances. If Matthew was just making up a story about Jesus that he would want people to believe because it was so convincing, this is probably not what he would put in it. Because we know people don't walk on water. And yet here it is in Scripture. The Holy Spirit inspires Matthew to write down this historical account with which Matthew himself was an eyewitness to. This miracle reveals Jesus' power to do the impossible. But it actually does more than that. It reveals Jesus' divine identity. You see, in the Old Testament Scriptures, there is only one who has mastery of the water. God, Yahweh. Uh, Job chapter 9, verse 8 describes how God tramples the waves of the sea. Psalm 77, 19 describes how God's way is through the sea and his path through the great waters. And Isaiah 43, 16 speaks of how God makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. The ancient Hebrews were very uncomfortable with large bodies of water. They were not a seafaring people. They were not sailors. So for them, one of the greatest signs of power would be mastery over the water. And that was something that belonged to God alone. For Jesus to walk on water like this, like it's solid ground, would have shouted to the disciples that this is no mere man. This is a divine man doing what only God can do. And we might think, if we were in the disciples' situation, this would be an encouragement to see Jesus coming towards us in this amazing display of his power, right? Jesus is here. He's going to help us. They'd be comforted, right? That's what we might think. But 
The opposite turns out to be true when we look at verse 26. They see Jesus walking on the water and they're terrified. They're filled with fear. Well, they think Jesus is a ghost. Which, you know, in ancient Jewish culture doesn't necessarily mean a disembodied spirit, but some kind of spiritual being. Uh, and they're, again, right, probably at their wit's end. They're probably exhausted. Their, their minds are just, you know, fatigued. And they see this person walking on the water towards them, right? That might be a little startling. You know, you might freak out if you were in that kind of situation. And they're terrified. This is a ghost. But Jesus is not there to scare them. He's there to comfort them and help them. And he's quick to speak a word of comfort to them. He tells them in verse 27, Take heart. Don't be discouraged. Don't be afraid. I I'm here to help you. Take heart. Let your hearts be strong. He tells them, it's me, it's I, it is I. Which literally, in the Greek, is ego eimi. Now that may not mean much, but consider the fact it's the same phrase that Jesus uses in John 8.58, when he says, before Abraham was, I am. Same phrase in the Greek. It's the Greek version of the phrase that God spoke to Moses when he says, tell them, I am sent you. Now Jesus is, at one level, saying, it's me, Jesus. But when we survey all of Scripture, we see Jesus is saying much more than that. He's saying, I am God. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am. Another indicator of Jesus' deity here. And in light of this, Jesus tells them, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. He's not there to harm them. He's not a ghost. He's there... God, he's their savior. He is in control of the situation. And he has a good purpose for it. Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And as sweet as those words from Jesus are, the disciples aren't quite convinced yet. As we see in verses 28 through 29. And good old Peter, uh, he has an idea. Peter's got an idea. Since Again, he's not fully convinced this is Jesus, apparently. So he comes up with a test to make sure that this is not a ghost, but it's really, it's really Jesus. And so Peter calls out, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Because Peter knows people can't walk on water, right? And this is a very interesting test that Peter chooses. And it exhibits Peter's genuine faith and doubt at the same time. Right? It exhibits both his faith and his doubt. At first, Peter says, if it is you, and he seems hesitant to take Jesus at his word, doesn't he? He's not quite convinced. He wants something to validate this claim from the figure on the water. He doubts that's Jesus. But at the same time, Peter exhibits genuine faith that this really might be Jesus. And if it is, Peter is confident that Jesus can make him walk on water too. So in Peter's mind, this is a test of Jesus. But the test will really be for Peter. So in verse 29, Jesus says to Peter, he, he condescends to Peter's suspicious request and, and he commands him, come. Come. Jesus doesn't have to do this. Jesus has no obligation to obey Peter. But he does. For Peter's sake. So Peter lifts a foot out of the boat, places it on the water, and, and it holds. 
He takes his other foot out, puts it on the water, and begins walking towards Jesus. His eyes probably fixed straight ahead, like a child taking its first steps towards his father. What an incredible thing to have happened to Peter. His doubt-tinged faith in Christ's power has led to this, this second miracle, is really what it is. There are now two men walking on the water, not by Peter's power, not because of his faith, but because of Jesus' power. What, what doubt could Peter have had at that point that this was really Jesus? And that Jesus is absolutely powerful. Jesus passed Peter's test with flying colors. And the disciples in the boat are watching this happen. They are amazed. And notice that Jesus does not only use his power for himself, but on behalf of his people. Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. What a comfort to know that just as Jesus used his divine power to strengthen Peter's faith and to support him on the water, he will also use that same power on our behalf to help us and strengthen us as we need. I have no doubt Peter's faith was, was probably at a high point here. He's like, look at me, I'm walking on water. What a good place for a happy ending, right? Like we just put a period there and then go on to the next part of Matthew. But, uh, you know, our faith does not remain at such a high point forever either. And the test is coming for Peter, a test that really will reveal the true nature of his faith. We see him 30 and 31. Peter's nearly to Christ. The waves are choppy. The wind is blowing. Uh, he's almost there, just a few feet away when something happens. And Peter, whose focus has been on Christ this whole time, suddenly becomes focused on something else. The storm. And he sees the, the, the wind blowing up the waves around him. He feels it on him. He feels the force of it. And he realizes, I'm standing on the middle of a lake in a storm. What am I doing here? What is going on? And Peter becomes afraid, the text tells us. He becomes afraid. What happened? What happened? This guy's walking on the water a minute ago, and now he's afraid. He took his eyes off of Christ, and he fixed them on his circumstances instead. Now Peter's focus turned away from Christ to what was going on around him. And as soon as Peter gave more weight and power to what was going on around him, to the wind and to the waves, he essentially believed more in the danger and power of the storm than in the safety and power of his Lord. And he became afraid. Have you ever had a similar moment of doubt? Now, friends, Peter is a weak, sinful human just like you and me. We relate a lot more to Peter than we do to Jesus. Do we not have moments where we're walking with the Lord and our faith seems strong and we're, we're feeling really confident and then the storms of life come upon us and then all of a sudden we are afraid over the littlest things. And we give very little thought to the power of the God that we were just walking so closely with. I think many of us can probably relate to Peter here. And this kind of fear that Peter has is rooted not in rebellion but in weakness. Peter's fear is not rebellious disobedience so much as it is a deficiency that results from his weakness as a sinful man. And so in a moment, we'll see Jesus deal much differently with Peter and Peter's fear than he does with the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. 
And so Peter, who, who merely a moment ago was walking confidently on the water to his Lord, begins to sink in verse 30. Almost as if that fear itself was, was uh, concrete, right, in his heart, dragging him down. And this is really a vivid picture, and it's an appropriate metaphor. Fear can lead our hearts away from God. It takes us further away from Him. And weak and sinful fear tends only to grow unless something is done about it. But Peter doesn't drown. He doesn't just accept his fate and sink into the Sea of Galilee. No, Peter cries out one simple, short, but sincere prayer. Lord, save me. Lord, save me. As he's sinking down right in front of Jesus, his eyes look up to the one who can save him, the only one who can help him. And he says, Lord, save me. Peter's on quite the, the faith roller coaster, isn't he? At first he's filled with faith, he walks on the water, and then he doubts, and he's filled with fear, and he starts to sink. And, and now what do we see? Lord, save me. A genuine prayer from a genuine disciple. This is genuine faith. Is it weak faith? Yeah, it's weak faith, right? Peter has weak faith. But is it genuine faith? Yes, it is. Peter believes that Jesus can save him. And so he calls out to him, Lord, save me. And notice this is a short prayer. It's three words in English. It's not eloquent. It's not fancy. It's not filled with big theological words. This is all Peter could think to pray. But it is a true and sincere prayer. And sometimes that's all we can get out, if we can get out anything at all. Lord, save me. Help me. But God will not reject your prayer because it's too short or too simple. Has Jesus responded to Peter's cry? Now, Jesus' response is not to rebuke Peter and say, hey, you need to repent of that fear before I can help you. It's not to scold Peter. Are you kidding me right now, Peter? It's not to ignore Peter since his prayer was so short and small. Jesus responds in a very different way. No word in the Bible is there by accident. And that's certainly the case with the word immediately that we see in verse 31. Peter prays, Lord, save me. And immediately, Jesus reaches down to grab hold of Peter. Jesus does not ignore Peter's request because his faith is weak. Jesus helps Peter because he has faith at all. And there's no delay on Jesus' part to save the struggling sinner who cries for help and mercy. Jesus doesn't think twice about helping his weak and needy people. He doesn't think twice about helping Peter. He grabs hold of Peter immediately in a strong and secure grasp. It is not Peter who pulls himself up to walk on the water again. Peter does not rescue himself here. No, Peter is weak and helpless and worse than that, doomed to drown if Jesus does not help. And Jesus grabs hold of Peter immediately and saves him. Peter is weak in body and faith, but Jesus is strong to save. Now, friend, you ever wonder if you will make it to heaven because you find your faith to be so weak? You struggle to trust Christ to care for you sometimes? 
Let your heart be strengthened by Jesus' response to Peter. Uh, Jesus saves all who call upon him, regardless of whether their faith is weak or strong. Jesus helps all who come to him, whether their faith is weak or strong. That is an incredibly comforting reality. Because I don't know about you, but my faith feels very weak sometimes. And I find myself being battered about by the storms of life over things that take a step back, seem very silly compared to the power of my God. But we see here, it's not the strength of our faith that saves us. It's not the strength of our faith that brings us into God's kingdom. It is the strength of our Savior. It was not Peter's faith that even, even brought him out onto the water, and it was not Peter's faith that delivered him as he sank. It was the strong power and grip of Jesus who would not let him go, and he will not let you go. That is a comforting thing to know that your eternal destiny, that your soul, that your life does not depend on how good of a Christian you are or how strong your faith is. It depends on the strength of your Savior. But Peter needs some teaching. Peter needs a little lesson here. Having delivered Peter... Jesus speaks to him. A simple phrase, but one that is very, very deep in meaning. And he says to Peter, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? Now notice, Jesus does not call Peter faithless, does he? But one of little faith. One of little faith. Friends, even a little faith is saving faith. Not the amount of faith that saves, it's the nature and the object of the faith. Is it divinely given faith? Is it trusting in Christ? That's what makes faith genuine, however weak or strong it may be. Though Peter's faith was weak and struggling, and though he doubted, at the end of the day, who did he turn to as his only hope? Christ, Jesus. That is the mark of true faith, whether it be weak or strong. It is faith that ultimately turns to Christ. Now, Peter was not filled with unbelief, but with weak faith. And Jesus still rescues those with weak faith. And that fact in and of itself should, should cause our faith to grow a little bit stronger, don't you think? But Jesus also asked Peter to question, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? Uh, the word doubt here in the Greek only appears in one other place in Matthew 28, 17, when the disciples see the risen Christ and some worship him, but some doubt. One commentator notes this particular word denotes not so much a theological certainty of unbelief as a practical hesitation, wavering, being of two minds. And Peter did waver. He did doubt, didn't he? One moment he's walking on the water confident in Jesus' power. And in the next he's overcome with fear at the wind, which... You know, you can't even really see when, technically. Peter doubted Jesus' power to overcome the storm. And did Peter have a good rational reason to doubt? I don't think so. Jesus' question implies that Peter had no real basis to waver in his confidence in Jesus' power. Right on paper, there was no reason Peter should have doubted. But Peter did. And we do too. Such is the nature of the weak and sinful flesh. But notice that Jesus' words here, while direct, they're not harsh. 
They're not harsh. Jesus reserves his harsh and heavy words for the self-righteous and proud. But to the weak, he's tender. This is a gentle admonishment to help Peter see the weakness of his own faith. You get the sense when you read about Peter uh, that he trusts a little bit too much in his own abilities. Right? That when you read about Peter, he, he, he maybe thinks he's uh, much better of a disciple than he actually is. That his uh, faith is much stronger than it actually is. Peter probably trusts a little bit too much in himself. Right? In his own abilities. I think Peter would make a very good American. Um, but Peter's just learned where that got him. That got him neck deep in the Sea of Galilee. And yet Jesus has compassion towards those who struggle with doubts and weakness in their faith. Who, who are just like the father of the demon-possessed boy who cries out and says, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus knows that we struggle with anxieties and fears and weaknesses. He knows that. He's compassionate towards us. But for the same reason he gently admonished Peter, that Peter might learn and grow, not in his trust in himself, but in his trust in Christ, in the same way Jesus does not want us to remain enslaved to our fears or dominated by our, our weak faith. And Jesus desires that we would learn to trust him more and grow in the strength of our faith and our confidence in him. While Jesus is kind and compassionate to us in the weakness of our faith, he does not want us to stay there. If you find yourself burdened by the fears that accompany weak faith, consider the same question from Jesus. Why do you doubt? What reason has Jesus given you to wonder if he will deliver you? What reason has Jesus given you to, to question if he will still be good tomorrow? Can you think of any reasons? Peter had ample evidence of the goodness and power of Jesus for this time he's been with Christ. He's seen Jesus do amazing things. He has ample evidence for the power and goodness of Jesus, and so do we. So why do we doubt? Why do we doubt? Peter has just had a very important lesson. Right? His faith is tested. Both its genuineness and its deficiencies have been revealed. At the same time, Jesus' perfect power and ability to save has been revealed to Peter as well. And finally, the disciples have the right response to Christ. They worship him. Verse 32 and 36. Jesus and Peter get back in the boat. The wind suddenly ceases. I think by this point, the disciples probably realized that Jesus is responsible for that. It's kind of a repeat of calming the storm in Matthew 8. And those in the boat, the other disciples, they've been watching this whole thing. They've seen Jesus walk on the water. They've seen Peter walking on the water. They've seen Peter sink. They've seen Jesus rescue Peter. And when Jesus and Peter get back in the boat, the disciples do the only thing that really makes sense at this point. They worship Jesus. They worship Jesus. Uh, they worship the one who is the master of the waves and the water. They worship the one who is I am. And this is a crucial point in the narrative, right? We, we may not understand how significant this is, but remember Jesus and the disciples are all God-fearing Jewish men. Right? They pray the Shema, the ancient Jewish prayer and confession of faith from Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. This declaration, there is one God who will not share his glory with another. For the disciples to worship Jesus Christ is in one sense very shocking. 
And if Jesus is a mere man just like you and me, then Jesus should stop them. If Jesus is no different than you and I, if he's just a, just a man, then he should not accept this worship from his disciples. But do we see Jesus stopping them in the text? Do we see Jesus saying, no, 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 not me, worship God alone? We don't see that here. Jesus receives the worship of the disciples. He is God in the flesh, worthy to be praised, worthy to be honored and glorified, equal to the Father and the Spirit and His deity. And what a confession we see from the disciples too. Truly, you are the Son of God. Verse 33, truly, you are the Son of God. They bow before their King. They recognize and confess and marvel in amazement at His deity. It seems that perhaps they were uh, unconvinced that Jesus was really the Son of God. Maybe they were not quite sold on that yet, but here there can be no room for doubt. Truly, Jesus is the Son of God. And this is the proper response to Jesus, trusting Him and worshiping Him. Do you worship Jesus Christ? Is He merely just a religious figure to you? Interesting, perhaps, but just another figure. Or have you come to rightly understand Him as God, like the disciples did that day, worthy of worship and adoration and glory? That's a question we must ask. Do I worship Jesus Christ? And we look down at verse 34 and we see the disciples land in a town called Gennesaret. This is a rich agricultural area southwest of Capernaum. It seems that the storm blew them off course and they landed somewhere different than their original destination. But even there, miles away from Capernaum, Jesus is recognized. His fame has spread that far. And the men of the area, they, they knew who that is. And they've heard about what he can do. And so they go throughout all the region and they grab all those who are sick and suffering and bring them to Jesus that he might heal them because they believe so much in his healing power that they think even a touch of his garment is enough to make one well. They have faith too. And while Jesus' power flows from his divine nature, not from his garment, Jesus still allows this to happen. He allows them to come up and touch his garment and heals them. It's interesting to consider that the disciples had seen so much of Jesus. And while they had faith, they had doubts. But the residents of Gennesaret, they had never seen Jesus before. They just heard about him. And yet, they believed what they had heard. As Paul writes in Romans, faith comes through hearing. But yet, Jesus cares for them all. He cares for his disciples. He cares for those who are in Gennesaret. He helps and heals them all. And this account of Jesus' mighty power and Peter's weak faith calls us to consider several things regarding our own faith. Do you struggle with assurance of salvation? Do you wonder if Jesus can and will save one such as yourself? Look to Jesus, who never lets go of his people. Do you wonder if your faith is strong enough? I'll just guarantee you right now it's not. None of ours is. So look to Jesus, whose strength is limitless. Do you find yourself, though sincere in your love for Christ, struggling to trust Him? Look to Jesus who loved you before you loved Him and who gave His life for you to ensure the eternal safety of your soul and who by His power and providence will bring you through this life, working all things for your good. 
Robert Murray Machane, a Scottish pastor in the 19th century <coughs> who lived and served Christ for only 29 years, wrote in a letter to a friend, For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. If you want to grow stronger in your faith, the answer is not to fix your eyes on yourself and your problems and your weaknesses and your deficiencies. That's not going to help you grow stronger in your faith. The answer is to look more at Christ. Fix your eyes more upon Him. You may be weak in faith and others may appear stronger in faith, but we're all saved by the one strong Savior, Christ Jesus. May that be a comfort and a soul-strengthening encouragement to you today. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we praise you. And Lord, we rejoice that you are indeed mighty to save. And Lord, we know that if our salvation was contingent upon us, that if it was dependent on how strong our faith was, Lord, who would be saved? We rejoice to know, Lord, and Pray that you would comfort the hearts of those here today to know that you are always powerful, that you are always faithful, that you are strong and mighty, and we, being so weak and frail, can find such comfort and refuge in your strong and unbreakable grip. Lord, may that give us hope as we walk with you, and even as we have moments like Peter where we doubt and we fear and we, and we sink, oh Lord Jesus, turn our eyes back to you. And truly, Lord, you do that sometimes. You let us sink a little bit. That we would see that our greatest need and our greatest security is in you. So, Lord, for every look at ourselves, may we take ten, a hundred, a thousand at you. And may that bring our souls peace and comfort and assurance. And we ask this in your name. Amen.